We have a new sponsor we're welcoming this week on Oh My Dollar that I'm really excited about because I actually think a lot of our listeners need what they offer. So if you have people that depend on you, you need life insurance. But I know that the traditional application process for life insurance and waiting weeks to receive a decision can be incredibly frustrating. That alone is enough to turn me off. I know that if I can't do something online, I probably won't do it. Honestly, it's 2018. Applying for life insurance should be simple and totally hassle-free. In comes Haven Life Insurance Agency. Haven Life offers term life insurance issued by Mass Mutual that you can apply for online and is available nationwide. Apply anytime, anywhere, from any device. Haven Life offers term life insurance, which is an affordable way to financially protect your partner, kids, or other folks that rely on you. Term life insurance policies have coverage terms, usually 20 years, but it could be 10, 50, or 30 that you can choose from when you buy your policy. So you can put a policy in place for the years you think your loved ones would need it most. For example, it would be about 18 bucks a month to get a $500,000 20-year Haven term policy issued by Mass Mutual for a 35-year-old woman in excellent health. Haven Term has a level term premium, which means the premium won't change over the whole life of the policy, so it's super easy to plan in your monthly budget. Life insurance is an important part of your financial plans. If you have people that rely on you, you probably need it. When buying insurance, as a rule of thumb, you generally want five to ten times your annual salary and coverage. That's a good starting point, but Haven Life also has an easy-to-use online life insurance calculator to help you figure out how much coverage is right for you and your family. No math required. If you're looking for peace of mind and financial protection for the people you love, check out Haven Life. You can start the process quickly at welcome.havenlife.com slash OMD. That's welcome.havenlife.com slash OMD. Welcome to Oh My Dollar, a personal finance show with a dash of glitter. Dealing with money can be scary and stressful. Here we give practical, friendly advice about money that helps you tackle the financial overwhelm. Here's your host, Lillian Carebake. Today I want to talk about money mindset, which is kind of a, I don't know, a weird term. Have you heard of this term, Will? Uh, outside of got my mind on my money and my money on my mind, no. <laughs> Money mindset is something that's like often bandied about in the personal finance community. And it's this idea of your mental attitude towards money is part of what kind of, I hate to overuse this word, but manifests your financial outlook. Um, and a big thing people like to frame is this idea of scarcity mentality or scarcity mindset and abundance mindset. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's something that I personally have a really fraught attitudes towards the idea that money mindset is kind of the key to getting your money together is something that like I personally am pretty frustrated by because to me it often seems like a way of telling low-income people that they don't have money because they're thinking about it wrong um, and I, I have a fundamental issue with a bunch of like folks that are abundant in systemic privilege and advantages telling low-income people that they just aren't thinking about money right if they thought about it right they would have more money and that like poverty is a disease of the mind. Huh. So what's the summary of what these people say the money mindset is? Well, it's not it's not a money mindset. It's the idea that you can have different money mindsets. So um, y y and I actually think that there is 
value in looking towards your mental attitudes about money. I Uh just think that it's often used as sort of a way to gloss over some very real systemic disadvantages and structural privilege that folks have towards dealing with their money. Like, right, like wealth is still like a game and it's still it's still a game like highly influenced by systemic privilege. That being said, I do think there's some advantages at looking at, we've talked about before, like your relationship to money and the way you think about money yourself can really factor in to how you make decisions, right? So like money mindset can simply be like, if you believe that money always disappears (laughs) or that your money is completely outside of your control, you might spend it in ways that aren't really thinking about your long-term well-being, right? Uh And lack of information about money not to mention like some straight up dysfunctional beliefs about money (laughs) are often part of living in a low-income community so if all of your family members and friends and coworkers believe that being in debt is the only way to get nice things or that money will always disappear before the end of the month so you might as well use it immediately or that the only way to have enough money is to inherit it it's really easy to make some bad choices about money because it's sort of propelled by your circumstances. Right, Everyone, if that's sort of ingrained in your in your brain. It's the normal, right? Mm-hmm. Like being broke is kind of normal. Um, yeah. And that isn't, that being broke is kind of normal is not just true in low-income communities. Um, it's also true in a lot of middle and upper middle class communities where everyone kind of believes that they don't have enough because they're stuck in this keeping up with the Joneses mindset, right? Uh-huh. So everybody thinks that financing cars is the only way to obtain a car, <laughs> right? That like the that leasing a car is totally normal or um, that running a balance on your credit card is totally normal. Like mm-hmm. debt debt and debt to obtain items of status um having you know 80 dollar yoga pants is totally normal and uh is a reasonable thing to go into debt for for some people or or the idea that you're not in debt um even if you can't pay off your credit card each month because oh you know overall i'll be able to work it out right Mm -hmm. um so like dysfunctional beliefs about money or just straight up like kind of poor information can really impact like the way you make choices about money. Um, we can often get caught up in bad decisions about money because we simply don't have the right information about how to get ahead. Like Roth IRA, not a thing a lot of people are exposed to in their like 18, 19, and 20-year-old selves if you're working a minimum wage job. No, right? I agree. <laughs> hard, hardly came up. Uh, it, it sounds like a thing that other people worry about, right? And not a thing for you. Um, and when I think about my own money mindset, I'm I'm less likely to dwell on this kind of scarcity versus abundance narrative that many people use. To me, that often sounds kind of like a law of attraction style, the secret way of dealing about money. But I do like to think about how the financial status of my friends um, has kind of changed my own attitudes about money and like how an internal shift in the way that you approach money and you approach your finances can make a very real and tangible difference in yeah. your finances. Like I, when I stopped, you know, believing that being broke was the only path to being a good person, which sounds mm-hmm. ridiculous to say it out loud, but like, I had lived in communities where intentional living in voluntary poverty to serve those in poverty was a huge part of um, doing good work. In, yeah. And and 
I so I had internalized this belief that the only way to be a good person was to also be poor. My life got a lot better when I stopped, you know, stopped internalizing that narrative. And that doesn't mean I don't have a lot of respect for people that choose to live a life of voluntary poverty to serve those in poverty. But it also means that I realized how much more good I could do on a personal level if I wasn't worried about feeding myself or getting health care for myself. Um, and when you're surrounded by people that are living paycheck to paycheck, I think it's really easy to think that it's the only possible lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. Like if all your friends are broke, you're like, oh, whatever. That's fine. All my friends are broke. I'm broke. Cool. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you see that as normal. Yeah. And that like money is always the biggest source of stress. Right. So like I feel like money runs through the narrative of a lot of people, a lot of artist communities, a lot of low income communities where money is always the biggest barrier and that it's always going to be the biggest source of stress. And there's no way that anything else will anything else can top money because money is this huge barrier in your life. Right. And so when you're surrounded by people who think that working 40 hours a week at a big corporation is the only way to have a good income, you might be likely to internalize that belief, right? That like musician isn't a real job and you can never make real money that way Mm -hmm. or any number of those things. Like there's plenty of mental attitudes about money that aren't just scarcity versus abundance, but kind of these scripts that we tell ourselves Right, the ways different people make money and the results of that. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Um, and part of this is how people in some communities can treat those folks that have managed to save up money. Where I'm from, certain kinds of spending, um, even if it's from your savings or certain kinds of education, regardless of your income level or how you paid for it, is often seen as too big for your britches. Uh-huh. We don't really use that term out here as much in the Pacific Northwest, but in the South, too big for your britches is a is a big deal. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And it's sort of like going above your status. And part of that is also it's got this systemic privilege thing wrapped up in it, which is that like, oh, if you're born in wealth, then you can act like you have wealth. But if you're born poor and you try to make, you know, moves to get yourself out of that situation, you're too big for your britches. Right. Yeah. Right. Your starting situation determines what you should be doing. Yeah. And so one thing I've really appreciated in my own life is exposing myself to people outside of the nonprofit world. So I have mostly always worked in small nonprofits and it's often seen as a mark of pride that you're making too little money, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the very least, it's often seen as an immutable reality of the nonprofit industry. An industry, it's an industry that grew out of women who had husbands able to pay all the household bills as sort of a side thing. You did this volunteer work on the side. And so it's very common to believe that you're trading fulfilling work for a low income. So that the alternative, the only alternative, is to do bad things if you want to make more money. Right. That's where the, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> that's that, where the money's at. Right. The bad things is the only way to make good money. And if you want to do good things, you have to make terrible money. And this is really compounded these days by the fact that the industry mainly relies on grants and individual donations. And many donors think spending on staffing, also known as overhead, is a waste of money. And it's often used as a metric of how effective a nonprofit is, even in human services where staffing is the main cost of operations. Right? (laughs) Um, Social workers need to be humans, it turns out. Robots are not good at social work. Yeah, Um, yeah. 
And so this means that any increase to someone's salary is seen as wasteful spending. And so this keeps industry standards way below the private sector. And the industry tends to be pretty insular as well. So a lot of times you are only exposed to other people that work in nonprofits. Um, and we all volunteer for our friends' nonprofits. And we volunteer without pay outside of our job description at the nonprofits we work at. Like, it tends to be this very fulfilling loop of doing work for no pay because you're doing it because it's good, right? Mm -hmm. And it was very common at a lot of nonprofits I worked for to have full-time staff with eight or more years of experiencing experience making little enough money that they qualified for services like food stamps or Medicaid. And this was even true of people in executive roles. I knew executive directors that were making little enough money that they got food stamps for their family, you know, didn't have paid time off, didn't have health insurance. Um, and that was just the norm. It wasn't it wasn't seen as, uh, oh, that nonprofit is doing terrible things. It was seen as you know, oh, these good people are giving this this service and they're accepting this low pay in order to do this good work. Right. To put more of the focus on the on the whatever benefit the nonprofit's doing. Right. And this is like so pervasive in like arts nonprofits and social services nonprofits. And I one of the things that I was also very true for me is that we rarely had good tools for doing our work. Like I spent all day on a computer when I was in fundraising, except for meetings. And Mike, I never had a computer like less than seven years old. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they were always slow. We, you know, rarely had um, like good software. We would always use whatever was free or cheap. And like even functional chairs was a challenge. Like I, <laughs> I worked in one nonprofit where we actually um, made made volunteers sign a waiver if they were going to sit in one of the chairs. Oh my what, god! What, you know, like which is just, and 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 as funny as that is, that is so indicative of an industry that thinks that um, its staff's time is not worth things. So the extra work of getting a volunteer to fill out a waiver, probably in the to sit in a chair. Let's yeah, to <laughs> sit in a chair is this like. Overall, that probably cost a lot more money than just buying a chair that wasn't life-threatening to sit in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but this kind of belief that that is an unreasonable thing to spend money on, um, and that staff's time is, uh, you know, kind of limitless and cheap. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when I first started hanging out with people outside the nonprofit sector, I realized there were people who enjoyed their jobs and were making a positive impact on the world without also qualifying for food stamps. What? <laughs> <laughs> this was a concept I had just actually not been exposed to. <laughs> like, all of my friends worked in nonprofits. I worked in nonprofits. I did two years in AmeriCorps. I just was so exposed to this idea that you worked a side job to keep up your nonprofit hustle, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, those side jobs always had to be poorly paid. And that people were bad people if they got paid well for consulting work or something like right. that outside. Uh, <laughs> um, and my community had really limited my mindset. See, there's that word again. Mindset. To believe that literally anyone making a living wage must hate their job, <laughs> right? Yeah, because that's why they pay you, right? Isn't yeah, that the yeah. Idea? they <laughs> pay you because you must hate your life, which is which is ridiculous. We spend way too much time engaged in our livelihoods and our work um, to hate your job only in exchange to be able to feed yourself, right? Uh -huh. But Hopefully, it was yeah. so baked into my worldview 
that it was a seismic shift for me to realize that it might be possible to make enough money and not work for an evil corporation that I hated. <laughs> so I think one mindset shift that you that makes a huge difference coming out of poverty is this idea that you want to set up and protect your money. So the idea is like, ah, if I don't have any money, why would I need to protect it? Um, if all your friends are broke with no assets, the idea of insurance or protecting yourself from identity theft is considered not important. Like uh -huh. I was literally on a nonprofit board where we were like, eh, we don't need officers insurance because none of us have any assets. They can come take it away. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Like th that was an actual discussion that happened on the board of directors. But in fact, if you're low income or in debt, it's even more important that you have insurance to protect. Right, you don't yourself. have assets. To, right. <laughs> to throw right. out like, the problem. You can't float yourself. Like this is one of those things we've talked about disability insurance before. But like if you're in debt or um, you have low assets, one of the things that's really important is disability insurance. And that is simply because, like, how are you going to replace your income if you suddenly become disabled, right? And this kind of belief that, like, workers' comp will always cover you. We've talked about this before. Workers' comp only covers you if you get injured on the job. Uh -huh. But most disability is a result of illness not caused by the workplace. Right. I, I, off, off the job. Yeah. So it, it's really important to have things like insurance and to shift your mindset to this idea that like even if you don't have a lot you still need to find a way to preserve that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i don't want to just rag on nonprofits because like <laughs> like they're great they do awesome work they're a big part of my life we are currently in the office of a nonprofit yeah. right now or, or, but, I, but i guess similarly like i've done a lot of coffee work and that's sort of similar and that yeah. you're almost always going to be solidly at minimum wage with minimal benefits well and you know one thing that i thought about when i first started working as a dancer where you you can make pretty good money per hour yeah. I was like, how do I bond with my coworkers? Because don't you always just complain about how much, how little money you make as a way of bonding <laughs> with your coworkers? And I realized like I didn't actually feel like I had an entry point into a conversation to make friends with my new coworkers because the only script that I had for ways to bond with your coworkers was complaining about how little money you made, huh. At, which was like <laughs> such, it was such a part of service industry work where like, oh, you're working for another corporation and you're making terrible money so when you're like in the break room what you talk about is like how broke you are <laughs> right and in your case you can't even go out dancing with your coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because you know you're just working you're for free <laughs> <laughs> um but you know you make pretty decent money as a dancer so you have you have to find other ways to complain good the good news is we found plenty to complain about to bond with our coworkers. Oh, that yeah. wasn't about money but <laughs> Um, and it turns out that you can complain about how little money you make, no matter how much money you make. Yeah, you can complain about anything if your attitude's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, this is such a perfect example of money mindset, right? Is that like, I think the idea that you can never save um, at any income level is a money mindset thing, right? Uh -huh. So, so there are so many situations where I have people tell me that they absolutely can't afford to save, but they don't realize that like, oh, they actually, you know, got a tax break of one or 2% on their pay stubs this year. And they've been taking home one or 2% more and didn't notice it. <laughs> like there are, there are, it's, it's possible to save as little as 1% of your income for almost everyone because it turns out if you were making $100 a week, you can probably live off 99. Um, and, yeah, and scale that up. Yeah. yeah. 
And but, hey, start with 1%. Yeah. Like, let's start with it. But I, I think that the there is a lot of mindset things around saving and also around the you can't take it with you when you die uh-huh. <laughs> kind of belief, which is like spend all the money now because life is short. Um, and and there is value in in recognizing that money money is there to be exchanged for goods and services and that you should spend <laughs> it. And we've talked about my own inability to do that. But actually having conversations with yourself about what you want for yourself long term and that leverage that you can create if you save um even if that leverage is simply i would like to stop living paycheck to paycheck right yeah, like that's like, that's a good incentive it's that's like a motivator. an excellent incentive <laughs> man the stress of living paycheck to paycheck is terrible and most americans are doing it um and and there's a way out of it right and there's a way out of it at all income levels the great news is if you're making excellent income, the way out of it is faster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it. I, I think that that is a money mindset that is really worth shifting. And I also think it's one that while it can have its roots in systemic privilege and income level, it is also a thing that is easy to start to work on no matter your income level. So, like, there are reasons why you might be living paycheck to paycheck if you are in a marginalized community that are outside of your control. At the same time, saving is something that people all over the world can do. And it's also a thing that is possible at any income level, even if it might be a very small token. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. Well, what are your money mindsets, listeners? Yeah, we would love to hear about like your money mindsets. Do you buy into this whole abundance versus scarcity mentality money the mindset? Gift. Does it does it make <laughs> you a little a little rankled like when I hear it being tossed around or do you think it's the secret to your money success? It does uh, sound like someone who's doing very well for themselves finding a finding a good way to claim credit for it. <laughs> yeah, right? Um but that being said, like your brain is a really awesome amazing organism and your brain can have a huge effect on um how you spend your money. In fact, is usually responsible for most of your money money decisions. So, I would love to hear if your mindset has in fact impacted the way you think about money and has it shifted? Did you move industries? Mm. Did you change friends? And switch brains? Or did you switch brains? <laughs> That wraps our show for today. Our producer has been Will Romy, myself. Our intro music has been by Aaron Parecki. And your host has been Lillian Kerbig, your personal finance educator and host. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember to manage your money so it doesn't manage you. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. 
The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash prenatal.